HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. And this is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers, by young farmers. And today we have a Canadian farmer with us. Usually we are an American-oriented uh, uh, community, but this is a great excitement to have Jean-Martin on the phone. Hello, Jean-Martin. Hey, Severin. I'm good. How are you guys? I'm very well. I'm very well. Tell me, how's it going on your book tour? Well, I just came back from British Columbia, and I was there for 10 days, and uh, it really was wonderful. We went all over with the young agrarians, which are kind of like the uh, the Canada's greenhorns, and um, just a lot of people came out, and I would tell my story, and it was just so positive. There was a lot of good feedback about it. I'm, I'm real happy. Right on. So, John Lassell is the author of The Market Gardener, which... It is a wonderful new book, which has just been translated into English. It's available from New Society Publishers. And uh, full disclosure, I'm the author of the introduction. Um, will you explain a little bit the basis of your writing this book in the operation that you run, just the outline of uh, what you guys are producing there and how? Yeah, sure. Well, I guess our farm is, is a bit different from other farms. We my, my girlfriend and I, Modelen, we've been farming for, you know, for almost a decade on an acre and a half, and, and we've been managing to make uh, ends meet and, and make a good living at it. And I guess it's because we've been kind of farming differently. We learned a lot in New Mexico when we started farming, you know, a long time ago, and we traveled to Cuba and visited other places. And, again, we set up the farm without a tractor, and we, re- we really intensified our production. And eventually, in time, I just... I was observing that the results that we were getting on our farm were pretty promising with regards to, you know, productivity and profitability and quality. And um, 
I, I just I just got the feeling that what we were doing was was perhaps good enough to pass along, and it was pretty rare that you see a, a you know a couple that says that they're they're doing pretty good with farming. <laughs> so I I thought our story was perhaps inspiring, and I really knew because I, I had been working with Nikitai, which is works in in Quebec to develop CSA. There was there was perhaps not that much good information about how to grow, you know, intensifying organic production. So, I, I, for some reason, I took it upon myself to to sit down and, and write a book about how to go about it every step of the way. And um, yeah, it was published in French before, and and I think it is helping people start their own operation with, with good and sound advice. Well, when I was in Belgium during the Europe. Um the European tour meeting with young farmers organizations, they all knew about you and all had read your book because there was a very strong, like, small market gardening kind of niche there, much more established somehow than there is here in the U.S. And I wonder if you see a, if that niche is growing here uh, stateside, more and more people feeling like, smaller tools, smaller investment, more urban or peri-urban uh, format is in increasing, uh, even from the time of uh, Elliot Coleman to to now. Yeah, well, you know, I guess that, I guess the problem is when you want to start, you know, farming, uh, just just having the dream of a farm is, is really far away when you're starting out because most of the farms, you know, may, even if they're organic, the ones that are successful, they're big farms. And, you know, when they have a couple of tractors and a working crew and infrastructure and just well-organized, and when you're starting, you're like, this seems like really far away. And, and I guess the idea that you can start small and still be profitable and still making a living at it, it's something that is appealing to a lot of people that like to start, perhaps, you know, to getting serious about growing for the community. And, you know, for me, I, I see that there's a lot of potential to that. And a lot of people, they, they know that, they feel it, they, 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 they get the idea that working with hand tools is perhaps the way to go because it just your overhead expenses are low and the capital outlay to get started is not that much. But I guess it was, it's just about jamming everything together and, and having more technique, perhaps. You know, it's not about the tools. It's about the way you work and having the right techniques. And uh, so, so, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that people will, will read that book and, and it's going to talk to them, and just the same as it did for people in France and in Quebec and in, and in Canada because it just makes so much sense once, when you want to start to start small and upgrade as your skill sets develop and as you develop your clientele. And You know, who wants to have a big farm right off the bat? And it's just responsibilities and it's just this big expense. And Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the tradition that you guys are falling into and some of the specifics of your... Of your advice and of your of your practice, um, to give people a bit of a taste, what is the special sauce of Jean Martin? Maybe we can start with uh, where. How does this relate to the Coleman style or biointensive uh, market gardening, uh, or the kind of French intensive method? And and how did you develop uh, some of the practices that you have now, especially? 
some of your labor-saving uh, mulching methodologies. I know that that's a, like, a major trick. Yeah, there's a lot to say about all of this, but, you know, basically when we started, we were farming with hand tools, and, uh, you know, the best advice I ever got was to read Elliot Coleman's The New Organic Grower, which I did, you know, meant that was our Bible when we started, because it was kind of the first time that we were, somebody was describing a system that kind of makes sense to what we wanted to do, and we've been evolving in that kind of model ever since, but, you know, when we went to Cuba, visited the organoponicos there, which are like permanent raised beds and really intensified production, but you would see these acres and acres of permanent raised beds because these guys, they didn't have any tractors because they didn't have any petroleum. That influenced us a lot. And um, visiting farms in Europe and visiting farms in the U.S., Canada, and, and Quebec, the fact that, you know, we, I, you know, I speak Spanish, I, I speak French, and I just visiting all different places, you, you kind of get the better feel for what might work. And then eventually we, we put all of this together on the farm and, and, you know, we learned a lot by doing it ourselves. And we made a lot of mistakes and we learned from them and we tried to adapt to make sure that we're really efficient. And really on our farm, Severin, if there's one thing, is that we're really looking at efficiency every step of the way because we've, we figured out that if we want to have a life, if we want to have time to be with our kids, we really need to be really productive, you know, from morning to evening. And we've, I've been really focused on that. I used to plant trees, and it was all about being, like, super minimizing your every every gesture. And, and that, again, I'm brainwashed a bit like, like that way. So that we've been looking at our farm from a systemic point of view and, and trying to figure out how can this be done more efficiently, more rapidly, without always, you know, buying new tools or buying expensive things. And uh, that, that, that has worked pretty well for us. But will you describe how did you find the farm that you farm now and in what condition did you find it? Just a little bit of a startup story. Yeah. Well, we when we started, like, like I was briefly uh, telling you, uh, we started market gardening in New Mexico in Santa Fe. And we farmed there for two years, and then we came back to Quebec because, you know, we're from here, and we, we had our, our first uh, son then, and we set up a summer camp. We lived in a teepee for two seasons on rented land, and I think we were, we were farming, you know, uh, one-fifth of an acre, and we were doing 30 and C, for 50 CSA shares. And, and then, I know, it, after four years of doing this, we, we wanted to get established in the community, and land is super expensive. And that was one of the reasons why we were looking for small plots, because we just didn't have the money to buy something big. And we found this old rabbit farm that was abandoned, and it actually was a pretty nice piece of land with good, top, uh, you know, with good attributes, uh, good geography. And, but it was seven-acre woodlot and a two-and-a-half-acre prairie, in the middle of which had this old rabbit house. And uh, so, you know, we, we made a pledge to buy it, and it ended up working, and we... We set up our house inside the rabbit farm, which was, you know, a big upgrade from the teepee. And um, we started with this two-acre, you know, prairie that we had to really get going. So we, that was the whole start of our idea of not having a tractor because, you know, we didn't have place. We didn't have room for it to operate. And we, we established, you know, 180 permanent raised beds 
which is really the foundation of what we're doing here, these permanent raised beds, and then put up a lot of permaculture principles into all of this to make the space, the layout, and the setup really efficient. And, um, yeah, we've been, we've been going at this since 2005, and we've been just increasing production every year, but not the land base. And we've been managing this by, you know, always focusing on little things, how to make this better, how can we change our technique and just grow more of it, but without, you know, that's, that's my saying, is like growing better instead of bigger, because that's what we've been doing for 10 years. Well, not that much, not that much acreage, but plenty of space for little wild areas, and plenty of space for visitors to come and pitch a tent, and plenty of space to listen to the birds. I'm kind of amazed how much you can jam on such a small site. Yeah, well, yeah, you you saw the farm, and you know, for us, it's. You know, not having a tractor made a lot of sense from a production point of view, which is pretty uncommon to hear. But also, you know, when you're working outside, it's great not to always hear the ding of an engine and listen to the birds. And, you know, both, both Modelen and I, we've, we've always we've graduated in ecology and we've always were really sensitive to the ecosystems. And we've tried to build all these niches on the farm with a pond and, and, and just... This is so really fun. We've imagined the whole farm. It was bare fields. And if you come and visit it now, you know, everything you see, we've kind of created it, just planting shrubs and planting trees and doing all this setup to to make it fun for us, fun for the people that come and work for us because we feel that's important, but also for the birds and the frogs and, and the earthworms. And it's just, yeah, and you can all do this and still still be productive and still be profitable. And I guess that's, that's the main message I want to get out there. Is, you know, ecology makes a lot of sense. And as growers, we're, you know, we're so lucky. We're doing applied ecology every day. And uh, for me, it's a great blessing. And, uh, yeah, that gets me super stoked to talk about our story and about our growing practices because I, I know a lot of people would really like to, to do this. And, if, you know, it really is possible. If you know what you're doing, you can start up a little farm and just, make it happen, and it doesn't need to be a big operation. So there's, um, there's a pretty important um, emancipatory quality to this narrative in terms of low input, low startup costs, um, small-scale, manageable, manageable frame. It does, you know, you make it sound so easy, and, of course, it is possible for it to be that easy in your experience. Um, but it seems like we, one part of this narrative we have to make sure to cover is that you're positioning yourself very strategically from a political economy standpoint in uh, proximity to um, some cities and and very aggressively uh, marketing your CSA of super high quality. Can you give some other clues what makes this model viable and what what should people be sure to note slash buy your book and read about in more detail? But you can tease them a little bit um, just for some of the preliminary thinking that went on in your head as you were evaluating where to locate yourself. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, for sure, <laughs> I'm this kind of person. I'm, I'm really positive, And when I talk about my farm and what we've been doing, I, I you know, 
I sometimes perhaps make it sound like if it's all easy and all good and, you know, really the wave of the future. And, and to some to some point, I think that, really, because I, I, I know what we've been through and I've, I can compare it to what other people are doing. But we've been always focused on quality and what we're doing. And um, I think that's the real that's the real trick here. If if you want to succeed in farming, you know, maybe at a large scale or at a small scale, you kind of need to know what you're doing. And there's there's I believe not a lot of resources out there that really gives you not just a, a big portrait of everything how everything can be done, but you know, a sound advice about how to do things in certain ways and expect good results and. Um, You know, if you want to be serious about farming, you definitely need to commit to more than perhaps one or two seasons of working for somebody else and really try and understand the managing steps to get the operation running. And from then, it's just about doing it yourself, you know, on, on a small level. And, and, you know, doing 30 CSA doesn't require that much equipment and that much, you know, Finding 30 families or 30 friends is not, it can happen. That's how we started. And from there, what's great is that, you know, you can expand your clientele as you expand your skill set, as you acquire new tools, as you just know what you're doing. And, um, yeah, I, I, I really feel strong, um, this being said, that quality is important because it's hard to compete with bigger growers and bigger organic growers that are heavily mechanized. You know, but quality, these guys, it's not obvious that they'll do it if they have all the machines doing all the work. So quality and just being there with the produce. You know, we do CSA, but we're there when we're delivering, and people, they know us, and we've been with them for, you know, a long time. Same thing at market. We really, we're there, and, and we share with our customers, and it's just so positive because it's really rooted in community-supported agriculture, and... Um, For sure, we're aggressive about, you know, marketing. We're, once we're there, you know, having produce that is washed and really nice looking. But overall, the people, they come to our stands because they like the quality. And when they taste the produce, they know that we've put a lot of care into it. And I guess that's, that's the fundamental part of it all. And the... And the The part, the part, of course, that's important to make to make note of is we have, you know, especially in California, I've just been watching a lot of new operations being started by people who are really super wealthy getting involved in building slaughterhouses and setting up this whole supply chain for new operations of a pretty big scale and, you know, kind of trying to play on the same terms with the mega food system that we have. Um, but, of course, on a more sustainable basis. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of hard to take that idea that you have to have major big bucks in order to have an impact uh, and to shift the, terms of, shift the terms of business. So, in the sense, what for me is really important about your work and the reason I was very honored to write the introduction from a kind of a, from a Schumacher perspective is that the there is room it seems to me in the way that we think about the reforming of our food system 
for there to be small, very small, medium, and large um, scale producers with local ownership and interlocking parts of the businesses as, you know, very natural expression of the kind of ecosystem of the of food commerce. And there's nothing that says you have to be only um, only big guys fighting big guys. I wonder I wonder how you yeah. talk about that if you do. Well, you know, uh, as a grower, I'm a lot, you know, I like the fact that there's people like you out there that have, like, this broader perspective about all of this because, for me, it's not so obvious to, to see all these, society, societal schemes, because I'm, you know, I'm in my field and I'm, I'm working my crops. But, you know, I think you said this, and it really resonated strong in me, and that was, you know, I think now what we need is not mass production, but production by the mass. And, and I really think that I feel that that's, what, that's where we're going, and, and I feel that my farm and what we've been up to is, is just part of this, different perspectives, this different look about how to go about farming. And, you know, hopefully we're right about this, but, uh, you know, if, if we get more, more young people into farming in 20 years, and not everybody has this, this, this silly idea of just growing farms to be always bigger and ever bigger and bigger and bigger, then, you know, we might just end up having this really rad farming community, you know, with a lot of farmers everywhere and just having more soil that is worked organically and not too mechanized and just not having this industry of organic agriculture but having this peasant farming scheme, which, you know, that's how it was before. And perhaps it's not such a bad thing that we're heading back towards that. And, uh, you know, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. That's a good point. That's a good place to, to end. That's a good place to land. We'll see and, and we'll be the ones who are seen and we'll be the ones seeing it if we're doing it. We'll be the first to see it. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's really wonderful. I'm really stoked because I just meet so many people, and I think it's probably the same for you. So many people are interested, hardly interested, and they want to learn and they're enthusiastic and you know, the small farm dream is alive more than ever. And and for me, the important thing is to pass along good growing practices and to make sure that the farmers that are, you know, starting this adventure, they, they, don't, they don't reinvent everything. They start from a given point, and then they evolve their technique and their practices from then. And, and you know, my utopia is that in 10 or 20 years, you know, people will have, you know, observe, absorb what we've been doing and, and just move it along further, just like a bit like, you know, we've been watching what Elliot Coleman was doing for all these years, and it's surprising how not that many people caught on to his idea. You know, you don't meet a lot of small farmers that are farming an acre and a half for 10, 15, 30 years. And, but I really think there's a lot of value in this kind of farming, and uh, I, just, I just hope that my work, contributes to, to this positive outcome of, of more, more successful growing. And I, I really think that's important because we need more farmers, but we also need more farmers that are 
growing successfully, and, and uh, this is my wish, and, and that's why I do this, and uh, hopefully some people will pick up on it, and uh, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> I feel it. So if anybody wants to know more, they can go and find your book, The Market Gardener. Do you have any? Uh, it's by Jean Martin, uh, and it's available from New Society Publishing. just came out. It's very attractive, well illustrated in English. Um, where else could they find you speaking? Are you going to do the summer conference circuit? Um, for this summer, I'm pretty much on the farm, and um, I'm doing different different places in in, in the, the spring. I'll be in Asheville, North Carolina, for the Mother Earth News Fair. I'm excited because I'm going to meet a lot of my heroes. Joel Saladin will be there, and I'm just looking forward to shaking his hand. And uh, actually, I'm I'm really trying to perhaps do a little tour. In the U.S., I just did one in D.C., and it was so wonderful, and I, I was hoping to do one with the Greenhorns. So I, we'll talk about that later on if you want, but I'm, I'm looking forward to, you know, giving more presentations about what we've been up to and just sharing the stories about, about growing. I think it's great to have farmers that are speaking about what they've been doing. So, yeah. Cool. So if somebody here is listening and they're the website, motivated, there's a list of events. And they can see if somebody is listening and they're motivated to help organize a tour in the U.S., probably for the fall would be the most appropriate. Um, get in touch with us. We have to work it out. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, you know, I, if I, you know, I, it'd be a dream for me to give a talk with you. <laughs> you're, you're one of my heroes, Reverend, and I think what you're doing is really important and. Uh, yeah, I'm 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 really excited about about what's happening now. It's happening. So a couple more announcements I want to make. Uh, coming up in April, April 26, 27, at the end of April, we have a symposium at UC Berkeley and at the Brower Center. That's a symposium on land access and land reform. It's a presentation in partnership with Chelsea Green, Berkeley Food Institute, Roots of Change, Schumacher Center for New Economics, and California Farmland. We are really thrilled to have Wes Jackson, Honorata Mittal, the mayor of Richmond, Joel Salatin, Gary Nabhan, Elizabeth Henderson, Fjord Varkina, Raj Patel, uh, who am I forgetting? An amazing and kind of an incredible lineup of speakers, all reflecting on this important moment, this urgent moment of land transition, and urging us all to think more broadly um, and more culturally about the continuity of stewardship that our land requires of us. So if you can't be there in person, join the Agrarian Trust mailing list so you get the podcast version sent to you. Uh, also save the date, June 22nd. For main sale freight, um, we're having a panel dinner discussion in partnership with Mosca Maine Farmland Trust, Penobscot Marine Museum, Greenhorns, and others. Um, you can learn about the experience of sale freight in history, the, the experience, a report back from the Vermont Sale Freight Project, which you know we were part of, um, and some profiles of sale freight around the world. 
uh, with featured speakers and la, la, la. I'm running out of time, so we'll tell you more next week. Thank you, Jean-Marcus. Hey, my pleasure, and, and wishing you happy seedlings, everyone. Happy seedlings, everyone. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.